Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. On these issues and so many more, we're following through on our commitments. And I don't want anything to get in our way. I am fighting every day for the great people of this country. Therefore, in order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens, the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord Thank you. He did it. He did it. Buck Sexton here with you all now. President Trump has withdrawn from the Paris Climate Agreement. And, oh, my, the reaction to this is a complete freakout level from the left. Uh, I have to say, Trump attacked this thing on so many different levels. Constitutional, legal, economic competitiveness, ethical. He attacked it for its redistribution. He attacked it for circumventing Congress. He attacked it for uh, dishonesty on the part of the international community. I mean, this was one of my, I will say, this is one of my favorite Trump speeches. I will will come out and just just put my marker on this one and say that I I thought it was great. Um, I am so happy that the president went out and did this on many levels. First of all, he cited uh, he cited some of the figures that I told you yesterday about costs to the economy. He went into those numbers, and I'll give you some of those as well here in, in just a few moments. Um, but the president established what you could call an America first environmental policy. The president no longer is going to be pushed into taking actions that do not benefit the United States, because the elites in this country would rather feel fancy and good about themselves than do what is best for this country economically and in terms of our industrial and commercial competitiveness. It's just, this is a a fascinating issue because it's one where you see a complete divergence on the left from reality. They are delusional on this. Uh, Earlier today, I I couldn't believe it. Uh, Well, I shouldn't say I couldn't believe it, but I found it initially hard to believe. Uh, There was Tom Steyer, who is a billionaire philanthropist, huge donor to a lot of the uh, environmentalist groups out there. And by the way, if you look into this, you'll see that there are these environmentalist groups that seem like they are grassroots, but there are entities that are set up as middlemen 
to, in a sense, launder the source of the funds for these supposedly grassroots environmentalist concerns. So you've got some very, very wealthy people who are really just the high priests of the religion of environmentalism and and, uh, climate scaremongering, uh, of climate change belief, right? The people that are the most—or is it climate disruption? Remember, they tried climate disruption for a while, but that seemed too— uh, that that seemed too manufactured. So now they're back to climate change. It had been global warming. So this is a scientific movement based on facts and numbers that don't align with what they say they will. So they have to keep changing the name of it. I would dis- I would think that's a tip off. That would seem to me to be an, an indicator to which we should pay attention. But Tom Steyer, on his uh, Twitter account, who's this guy's you know worth billions of dollars. Uh, big, uh, you know, Obama administration supporter. He writes, if Trump pulls the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement, he will be committing a traitorous act of war against the American people. I mean, this is the writing of a lunatic. That's insane. An act of war against the American people? Withdrawing from his climate agreement? So this climate agreement was, was so essential, I should note, that Obama couldn't even get around to it until his second term, this climate agreement that I should also note has no enforcement mechanisms whatsoever, this Paris agreement. And uh, you have people, uh, here's another one. I mean, the reactions to this are priceless, and they tell you so much. You have uh, Chris Hayes over at MSNBC on his Twitter account. The agreement quite literally imposes nothing. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Somebody with his own show, getting paid millions of dollars to go preach nonsense leftism to a uh, largely ignorant leftist audience. Uh, Okay, the agreement quite literally imposes nothing, so then why be a party to that agreement? Is this just all about the symbolism? Well, if it's symbolism and it has a cost... Maybe we should then look much more closely at what those costs are, because the benefits to us are zero, as far as I can tell. There's no benefit whatsoever, even if we had followed through on every aspect of the agreement. It would have made a negligible change on climate, and that's assuming that you accept all the premises from the start of the left about uh, the war- the models they have, the climate models, which have been wrong Time and time again in the past. Uh, you know, I, I always think it's fascinating to people say, well, you're not a scientist, so you can't have an opinion on this. And then they trot out someone like Bill Nye, who's a undergraduate level mechanical engineer, not a scientist of climatology in any meaningful sense whatsoever, and speaks about issues on which he sounds like somebody who hasn't even read a 101 level textbook. Uh, but they say, you're not a scientist. And I always want to want to point out, first of all, on a matter of public policy, We just need an informed populace. It can't be, well, you don't get to have an opinion unless you have a Ph.D. on this. Because what we see in this country increasingly are the Ph.D.s don't know anything about the subjects that they have doctorates in. When we're talking about the humanities, they are making up their own language. They are making up their own statistics and numbers. They are not open to rigorous intellectual debate where they're not they're not open to true scholarship. They are just uh, politicians in the robes of academics. They are pushing an agenda. And in the case of climate change, 
They are politicians in the lab coats of scientists, and they are pushing an agenda. It's nothing to do with the numbers, has nothing to do with hashtag science. This is a belief system. This is a belief system that has immediate political implications as well. It's a belief system for which they don't want a separation of church and state. In fact, if you believe in the church of climatology, there are immediate policy follow-ons that come from that, meaning that they can dictate to you stuff about your everyday life, wherever you are right now in the country. If the climate change crowd gets its way, they will be able to influence how much water you use, what kind of car you drive, how often you can drive, how much you pay to drive, what kind of electric bulbs you can put in, how much your electricity bill is, what kind of televisions you can have, how much water you can use on your lawn, what kind of trash you can throw out. And just, it goes on and on and on. Never mind the just theft that will occur through taxation in order to support projects under the guise of greening the planet or greening America, but is really just a massive wealth transfer. In the case domestically, uh, or, or domestically speaking, it's a wealth transfer from the taxpayer to the government and aligned interests, environmentalist interests with the government, and globally speaking, from the developed world to the developing world, from you know what is roughly Western civilization and its allies to countries that could use a few more factories and a lot more electricity and a lot more carbon. Let's just be honest about it. In fact, if you want to push people on this issue, just say, fine, you're right. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be allowing India to build all of these coal plants. They do spew out all of this smog. China shouldn't have such dirty energy facilities that are making the environment, creating all this smog. You know what they should have? Nuclear power plants. (laughs) Nuclear power plants, that's terrible. That's the worst. Well, if you want energy on a vast scale that is efficient and that is not polluting the environment, you would want nuclear plants. But nuclear became bad, right? Uh, nuclear was destroying the destroying the wetlands, or would would end the planet, or you know whatever. You go back and you look at the environmentalist protests and the hysteria around nuclear plants in the seventies, eighties, and the nineties. They they abandoned that, and now what do they want? They want want wind farms, they want solar power. Uh, this is, in a sense, similar to the sustainable food movement whereby people in urban centers of this country or who live around on the periphery of urban centers think that they are uh, wise and worthy and better people because they get non-GMO, meaning non-genetically modified organism food that comes from nearby farms that is brought into them. And they think, well, this is sustainable because it doesn't use chemicals, it doesn't travel large distances. What they don't realize is that if the entire world ate the way that they did or tried to eat the way that they did, much of the world would starve to death because you can't produce vegetables and produce and uh, and meat and, and you name it at the scale necessary to sustain the billions of people on this planet if you do it in a way that the hipsters of... Manhattan and Portland and Brooklyn and L.A. and you name it, 
like to eat. A similar mentality is pervasive on all this climate stuff. They don't want to do it themselves. I mean, even the most vocal climate change uh, alarmists don't want to change their own lifestyles. They want to change yours. They want to tell you what to do. They want to force you. And they are lunatics on this issue. I mean, there are plenty of people out there who believe that climate change is, in fact, on the same uh, plane of depravity as Holocaust denial. Climate change denial is on the same plane as Holocaust denial. That's why they say climate deniers. You'll notice that. That's not an accident. Because you want to destroy the planet. Who could be so stupid as to believe this? This is one of the greatest cases of mass hysteria and brainwashing in the history of the United States. I've never seen anything like it. People who otherwise are normal and sane on issues who, by the way, can't remember a word of whatever one or two years of science they took in high school, know nothing about science, but become indignant the moment anyone asks any questions about the science of climate change, become indignant when people point out that these climate models have been wrong time and again in the past, want to wag a finger in your face and perhaps even fine you or throw you in prison for the crime of questioning their so-called science. They put forth clowns like Al Gore as the spokespersons for this, like Bill Nye as the spokespersons for what they believe is an existential struggle for the human race. You'd think they could do better if this were so serious. But really, ultimately, it comes down to two things the most powerful motivating forces of the modern liberal mind, self-righteousness and control. And climate change is the perfect merger. As an issue, it is the perfect merger of those two very important concepts to the progressive, collectivist, statist left. They get to be so self-righteous, they're saving the planet, they're better than other people, they're better than those hillbillies who don't believe in this non in this stuff and they get control they can enact endless government policies there is no end to government meddling when they are trying to save the planet with that meddling don't you see no longer can you claim states rights or even representation in the federal government via the congress that doesn't really matter does it we're talking about saving the human race people They are crazy. And what's amazing to me is they think I'm nuts. They think you're crazy. Very hard to have a worthwhile conversation with people when they're so far apart on it. All right, well, I want to get into the specifics of what Trump said and also some of the most bizarre responses to this whole thing, um, which is... It is a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing, my friends, as the Bard once wrote. Uh, This is just, this is crazy talk. I mean, it's an agreement that quite literally imposes nothing. Let, Let me just say this about it. This Paris Climate Agreement does nothing but somehow means everything to Democrats in this country. How How is that? Someone makes sense of that one for me. All right, all right. I've got a lot more. We'll run into a break. We'll be right back. is 
Uh, the responses on this stuff are incredible. In reaction to uh, what President Trump did today, which was go out in the Rose Garden and uh, just do do a cannonball into a vat of self-righteous liberal tears. Uh, and this was, wow, uh, good and a great. I mean, the president made a very reasoned case about all of this, I should note. Um, you have reactions, of course, from various celebrities, because, you know, I want to get my information about incredibly complicated, uh, incredibly complicated issues of, of science and policy from people that can't be bothered to re- read a newspaper for the most part. Uh, that sounds great, right? Uh, people who are incredibly successful, largely because they are, uh, you know, very attractive or very entertaining or, or both. Uh, yeah, I want to take all of my advice from them. You Leonardo DiCaprio reacting. I know I'm talking about Leonardo DiCaprio on this show. It's a it's a dark day. Today our planet suffered. It's more important than ever to take action. I mean, I wonder if he said this before he hopped in a private jet to go hang out with a bunch of Victoria's Secret models somewhere. I mean, I'm not saying I'm 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 jealous. Michael Moore wrote, Trump just committed a crime against humanity. Uh, this admitted predator has now ex- expanded his predatory acts to the entire planet. I mean, that's Michael Moore, right? So I mean, that's just nonsense. Rosie Perez. Oh, she's still doing stuff, I see. So disturbing. Just dumbstruck. Oh, Andy Cohen tweeted, wow. I said, wow, so I can't, I can't fault him. It is a wow moment, but maybe we disagree on the, uh, the wow, why it's a wow. Um, also, I mentioned before, Chris Hayes, I think this is worthwhile. You know what's going to be funny? Tweeted out the great coastal real estate insurance bailout of 2032. You know what's going to be even more fun when 2020 and 2025 come comes along, and Florida's not underwater, and Malibu is not gone, and all of these people will pretend because you know the internet will have existed longer at that point. See, a, a lot of the climate alarmist stuff of the past, you'd have to have hard copies. Uh, you know, you'd have to have that. Uh, it wasn't actually a cover of Time magazine. It was an article in Time magazine from decades ago about the coming global cooling. And but but it's hard to find that stuff. Uh, but of course, you could watch Al Gore's The Inconvenient Truth and it's wrong. But these people will tell you that, well, OK, fine. That was a massive box office success. It made Al Gore a fortune uh, and it was wrong. But don't pay any attention to the fact that it's wrong. Why, why would I? Why would I not pay attention to the fact that it's wrong? That that to me that seems quite strange, doesn't it? Uh, but there won't be a real estate insurance bailout of 2032. There won't be a real estate insurance bailout of 2050 because the seas are not going to rise at the level that is set in these models. And people would say, "Well, Buck, how do you know that?" Uh, because they haven't when they've said they would in the past. So why would they now? And given the degree of uncertainty. And the variations in the proposed warming within those boundaries of uncertainty for climate change. I'm not worried about this. But you see, for the other side, it's not that we're debating having we're having a discussion, really. It's that they think climate change people are smart. People that question climate change in any way are stupid and bad. And that's about the sophistication of their entire argument.
but begin negotiations to re-enter either the Paris Accord or in really entirely new transaction on terms that are fair to the United States, its businesses, its workers, its people, its taxpayers. So we're getting out, but we will start to negotiate and we will see if we can make a deal that's fair. And if we can, that's great. And if we can't, that's fine. <laughs> He's saying they're gonna they're gonna renegotiate this. The Associated Press has already reported that France, Germany, and Italy have issued a statement saying that the Paris Climate Accord can't be renegotiated. Uh, yeah, they're very upset in Germany. Like we're going to make all the good agreements happen, and now the, the Trump comes along and it's the agreement is kaput. It's finished. It's so sad. In France, they hate the Trumps. They don't want to hear about this craziness with the with the agreement. It's a Paris. It carries their name. I say to you. Would they want the dirty air or the smog? Uh, it's uh, and you know anyway. You get the idea. So all these uh, French, French. Uh, and German and Italian and, you know, whoever else. I mean, they're, they're going to get upset about this. I should note that originally when Obama signed this thing, without, you know, there was no, Congress wasn't involved in this, binding in, in, in well, I'll get into how it's non-binding, but it could become binding in a sense. And this is, there's some nuance here that I'll talk to you about in a second. But originally they were upset about how this wasn't enough. The, the initial criticism from the climate alarmist left on the Paris Agreement was that it didn't do anything, really. And, and now what you see are people complaining, or I shouldn't say complaining. I mean, they are uh, apoplectic. I mean, they are enraged. I also love this thing about how the world opinion, you know, we're now a laughing stock to the world. What, is that, what does that even mean? First of all, who's first of all, I want them to tell me what country is laughing at us because of this. Uh, name a country that's oh, oh, you think China and Russia, China and and Russia are laughing at us because we're not going to do this uh, foolish agreement that would hurt our economic competitiveness and make us weaker and poorer and do nothing for the climate. You think they're laughing at us because we're not going to do this? No. Uh, and do we much care if the Europeans or I mean, who I want to know who who's laughing. That that would be a, a a fun experiment to play out. I'd like to know, uh, you know, what 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 country is is poking fun at us over over this one exactly? Uh, we're being mocked by, uh, I, I don't know, the Iranians, the the Bolivians, the name a country. I I don't care what they, what what those countries, what any country think of U.S. policy in this regard. Uh, and I, I'm amazed at how many who work in the media and make a living doing all of this seem to think that somehow that's a, a, a talking point that will get them far, uh, that, that the world opinion now is against us. Oh, here, here's right on right on cue. Here's Farid Zakaria of CNN. I believe he was the one that had didn't his staff or no, there was plagiarism and he was suspended for it. But I think initially the justification for the plagiarism was that his staff writes his editorials, not him. But to me, isn't that even worse than plagiarism? But at least plagiarism you do yourself. I don't know. I don't remember. I just remember he got suspended for plagiarism. Uh, so here's what he says about this whole 
agreement. This will be the day that the United States resigned as the leader of the free world. Uh, it's, it's nothing short of that. No, it's a lot short of that. Uh, it is way, way short of, of that. Um, I look at this now and I think to myself, wow, um, they are claiming this. The U.S. is no less of an economic superpower. In fact, you could argue, I think, rightly, that it's much. it will be more. I mean, it, this. look, the other part of this, too, is this wasn't that, it wasn't that momentous either way, at least right now. Um, but we'll have a little bit more money. We'll have a little bit more economic horsepower. We'll have some things going our way now that wouldn't have perhaps before economically. And, uh, you know, Trump mentioned in the speech exactly what I'm talking about. This would cost close to $3 trillion in lost GDP, 6.5 million industrial jobs. Households would have $7,000 less in income on average. Um why do we want that exactly? Two, two tenths of a degree of warming. You, you should. I really recommend, by the way, for those read the Trump speech, and let me know. Uh, you know, well, you can let me know now your thoughts. By the way, eight four four nine hundred buck eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. Phone lines open. The Trump speech was amazing. You're gonna want to hear it. Uh, you want to read it, watch it. Uh, it was a very good speech. I thought well written and well delivered. But. Here's what he says. Even if the Paris Agreement were implemented in full with total compliance from all nations, it is estimated it would only produce a two-tenths of one degree Celsius reduction in global temperatures by the year 2100. You know, if the human race can handle two-tenths of a uh, two-tenths of a degree of a change in temperature over the next hundred years, uh, we are not a very resilient species. When you look, I should note, at what the projections were for human uh, ability to sustain consumption at any level, food, uh, oil, uh, fuel. I mean, you, you look at all these projections in the past, and the problem with the coming catastrophists when it comes to the end of the human race or the, the, the end of uh, a modern economy is that they don't have a crystal ball. They can't see into the innovations and developments of the future. And so they extrapolate into tomorrow, or I should say a far, far off tomorrow, what is only true today, but what will change. I recommend it to you that you read Daniel Jurgen's The Prize, an excellent book. And I don't know that I don't know uh, Mr. Jurgen's politics or anything else. It's just a very well-written, readable book on the history of oil. But everyone should be familiar with this because we are naturally, and you won't hear the climatologists that are alarmists. Uh, you won't hear uh, this story, but we are naturally decarbonizing over the course of our uh, economic, industrial, and technological progress. That's already happening and has been happening. Uh, you look at what was a, a primary uh, human source of, of heat, of fuel, of, of you could say, uh, you know, the, the economy, uh, the, well, the beginnings of a carbon-based economy, burning wood, right? They used to burn wood for stuff. That's been around a long time, okay. But then 
with the advent of uh, machinery and the Industrial Revolution, we turn to, well, and along the same time, but we turn to whale oil for a while, which I like whales, so that makes me sad. Uh, but also, if you want to talk about not sustainable, right? We're already at a place where whales have been threatened because of, uh, well, uh, the hunting of whales. But uh, whale oil is very difficult to come by and uh, very expensive and inefficient. And so that's not a good way to do things on a whole bunch of levels. But then it was coal. And coal became the dominant for, for shipping, for locomotives. Coal was the dominant source of carbon uh, of carbon-based fuel for us. And yeah, coal produces more stuff in the air and, and is less efficient and is dirtier than other sources of fuel. Okay, but but we've already naturally transitioned. Sure, there's still coal, but we have been naturally transitioning now for, uh, well, throughout the 20th century into oil, gasoline. And gasoline is a more efficient and, and cleaner uh, fuel than coal was. And you look at the carbon output of it, and it, it's less than coal. And, and then we've gone from gasoline to natural gas, and increasingly we're moving towards natural gas and liquefied natural gas, which is also cleaner than. You'll notice we are in a continual process of naturally decarbonizing, and the market is working in this regard. It is happening. As the technology gets better, more people adopt it. As it becomes more efficient, as it makes more sense, people do it. And there's been a revolution in shale oil in this country as well, which some people point to and say, oh, isn't that a bad thing? Well, I say, no, this, this means that we have resources, natural resources here in the United States that is of strategic as well as economic value to us, national security strategic and economic value. Um, and all the while, we have been experimenting with and deploying in different ways renewables. And you see, the funny thing about the climate change crazies is that I'm not opposed to renewables. You're not opposed to renewables. I have no, I, I, I'm not an, an anti-renewable energy bigot or something. It's not like I, I see a, you know, I, I see a wind turbine and I just hate it. No. Well, actually, wind turbines are ugly. They do destroy natural landscapes. And they're more or less Cuisinarts for migratory fowl. I mean, they just kill birds all over the place. It's terrible. Including some species that are protected, I should note. So uh, those big wind farms you see are not without their perils for uh, the, you know, the, the community of, of ornithologists should be up in arms, the bird watchers out there, up in arms uh, about what those wind farms do. Um, but it's not that I'm opposed to them on some ethical grounds. I'm opposed to government subsidy for, which means government taking money out of your pocket to do it. And I'm opposed to the almost religious sanctification of renewable energy as though it makes you a better person. And we're trying to force this. We're trying to do a, a great leap forward away from fossil fuels into renewables before they're ready and before the market's there. It's happening. It's just happening too slowly for some of these people. But you see, that's why the urgency, the false urgency, becomes so essential. That's why they have to tell you that we're all going to be underwater and the polar bears are going to drown and there's going to be, you know, the, the hots are hotter, the wets are wetter, the wind is stronger, the wind is non-existent, the hur there's more hurricanes, there's less hurricanes. It, it changes every year. 
I should also note, for those who want to get into the hashtag science of all this, and I say hashtag science because people write that as a social signal. They have no idea about science. I read a lot. I'm a pretty well-informed guy, as one can be, just from reading a lot. So I make distinctions and judgments and come to conclusions based on what I like to think is a synthesis of vast amounts of data. I'm not a scientist, but I know when someone's lying to me. I know when there's a problem. I am a trained intelligence officer. I can see the lie. I know when people are trying to pull something. And, for example, just just to, to look at one aspect of science and another, people will say things now. You'll see this on social media. Oh, well, there's doubts about gravity, too. First of all, no, there really aren't doubts about gravity. But also, the uh, expressed uncertainty as a percentage in climate models would not be acceptable in, say, a pharmaceutical trial, right? You couldn't say, I'm like 50% certain that this will only have uh, a, a negative effect, that this will only possibly have a fatal effect on like one in 100 people. That wouldn't be okay. You need to have a data set that is provable, that is shareable, and that is redoable in a sense, where you can replicate the experiment that gave you those initial numbers. You share that data widely. It is subject to, also I should note, people challenging it, as well as being responsible for being wrong. You see, if you say that this drug cures heart disease and in fact it exacerbates heart disease, they're going to sue you. You are held responsible for that in science. But if you say that the climate's going to be five degrees warmer in 10 years or whatever, two degrees warmer in 20 years, and 20 years passes, and it's 0.01 degrees warmer, you know what they say? It's just a question of when the warming really heats up. We might have been off before, but now we're going to be right. Trust us. Why would I do that? All right, a lot of you want to talk about this. We're going to hit some uh, calls and talk more about this. Stay with me, team. Oh, uh, Trump has pulled out of Obama's Paris Climate Change Agreement. A momentous day for Trumpism, my friends. We'll be right back. Jim in North Carolina, WPTI. Jim, you got some good stuff for me, I'm sure. What's up? Hey, Buck, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Buck, I'm doing good. I just uh, listened to the climate change talk here and. I've lived in North Carolina my entire life. In 1989, I was in college here in North Carolina, and there was a crisis that we had to deal with here, um, and, and it was involving the moving of the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. We were told, and I was on campus at the time, it was a big fury, it was a, it was a crisis, it was hysterical. We had to move that thing because the rising ocean levels due to climate change were going to swallow that lighthouse up, and it was going to be, going to be gone. So... In 1999, that lighthouse was moved uh, at the cost of millions and millions of dollars. They had engineers come up here and use the same system that they used to move the space shuttle out of the uh, hangar to the launch pad, move that thing. And here's the point. I vacation there every other summer. I'm going down there next month on vacation again. The original site is still dry. It's still there. It's marked with the, with the boundary and a small sign. And I have never, as far as I can see, the ocean is still the same distance away from that original site as it, as it was uh, 30 years ago. We're talking 30 years now, and the site, the original site, is still dry. But it was a crisis. We had to deal with it and deal with it quickly, 
and I can't remember the breakdown on the on the on the uh, public funds versus the uh, private funds that move that thing. But if you look it up, it was done, and that and that's to me a perfect example of what we're dealing with here. Look, if you go back and you read about uh, you read about Thomas Robert Malthus, who was a, an English scholar theoretician uh, from the late eighteenth into the nineteenth century. Uh, he was he was right in a sense when he wrote his essay on the principle of population. I mean, he's right that uh, at some point, you know, people are go- they're not going to be able to sustain the population because there's not going to be enough food. We can't create enough food for those people. He was right the day that he wrote that, but he was wrong, of course, because populations got a lot bigger. But so did our ability to make food. So I mean, this is a Malthusian fallacy. We see in climate change, and by the way, if you're at a cocktail party or hanging out with some friends, having a beer and some barbecue uh, out back, just drop that one in the conversation. Malthusian fallacy, Jim, and everyone's going to be like, oh, what's up? Jim's been paying attention. Yeah. You awesome. know what I mean? Awesome stuff. I, yeah, man, I, I appreciate what you do. I listen to you every night going home from work, and uh, just keep fighting the good fight. I, really I will, brother. Thank you so much. I appreciate you listening. Uh, it means a lot. So shields high, and thank you for calling in. Uh, those of you who are on hold, please do. St- I, I know people get impaired. Whenever we go to break, the line sometimes just go dark. People don't like to wait. Uh, I, I've, I've got to go into a, a network break here uh, in a minute. But if you're on hold, I, I will take you at the top of uh, the hour coming up here in a few minutes because I do want to get uh, voices in. So lines are lit now. Let's hope they stay that way through our next break. I would talk. I want to give you a little more of the specifics. Why did Trump say this wasn't a good idea? Instead, yeah, it's fun to point out the hysterics of the left, and you know, this is an act of war. This is a crime against humanity. I mean, come on, people, get a grip. Uh, but also, I think it's important on a policy level to understand why why Trump doesn't like this. You see, it is not in fact the case that I sit here saying that I think this agreement is worthless because I want the planet to overheat and future generations to, uh, I don't know, to all die or whatever's supposed to happen if the climate thing that they're worried about happens. Um, I just think that they're wrong. It's not that I want the world to end. We'll be right back. I left out the best line. Welcome back, Team Buck. I left out the best line from Trump's speech pulling out of the climate agreement, uh, the Paris Climate Agreement. He said, I was elected to represent the citizens of Pittsburgh, not Paris. Boom. I like it. I like it. Good stuff from uh, the president. Um, So, yeah, yeah. Uh, we got a bunch of calls up. Let's do some callers here. Uh, thank you so much for lighting up the Freedom Hut lines. Austin in New York. What's up, my friend? Hey, Buck. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for calling in. What's on your mind? Um, well, first, I want to start off uh, just saying I've been listening to your show for about four months, and I'm a really big fan. I think you are probably the best conservative radio host out there i'm in my early 20s and there's really you seem to really be able to relate to younger people and i think that's something that's been missing a lot uh for for young conservatives thank you Um, appreciate that i'm humbled and i appreciate that yeah and i mean 
as a I'm only 23 years old I'm I'm a Trump supporter even though I don't I don't agree with everything he does or everything he says but I do support him because I think he really is trying to help the country um, but one thing just as a young person that I'm scared of is just you know we have we have all the terrorism going on we have the debt and our economy has just been so terrible the last eight years and yet like all we're ever talking about is Russia and global warming or whatever whatever Trump did or didn't do um, but one thing is just what's going to happen if if he isn't able to you know fix the economy and if he loses I mean what well a, a couple things Austin dollar. one is I, I agree that we spend so much time on what doesn't matter in the national conversation that is driven by media coverage, right? I mean, what, what, I don't know what your job is, but whatever you do, uh, I'm assuming it's, it's not to uh, gather information to share with the public in the form of news, although maybe. I don't know if you're uh, working the news. But, no, it's not. <laughs> okay, right. So, you know, that, that's at a certain level, the media has, an, has a responsibility, professional and ethical, to inform the American public about what's going on. But instead, what we get are, you know, uh, breaking news. Somebody said something about somebody who knew somebody who once talked to Trump about Russia. You know, I mean, this is not affecting us. You know, you said you're in your 20s. I'm in my 30s. Uh, we are the first generation in the post-World War II era that uh, is going to be less well off than our parents. We are the generation where the decades of social engineering via these massive entitlement programs uh, might come to a crashing halt, right? When all of a sudden the music will stop, when all of a sudden we won't be able to meet our obligations and there'll be massive financial implications for us where we'll face either a reality where we have to pay dramatically higher taxes, deal with uh, much less economic growth and prosperity, uh, have much longer uh, working careers well into our 70s, or 80s, maybe even our 90s. Uh, those are all things that I would like the policy community right now to be spending time on, right? H how to make healthcare cheaper, more affordable, and better, not just say that it will be. But instead, what we get, Austin, is a lot of stuff about Russia and, oh my gosh, the climate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. It's it's crazy, man. Well, look, it's awesome to have people at your... Uh, you know that are that are millennials. I'm a graybeard millennial. I think I just aged out of being a millennial. I know people say that a millennial is a born a certain time. I'm barely a millennial. It's great to have a fellow uh, conservative millennial on the air. Thank you for calling in, my friend. I appreciate it. Uh, Doug in Alabama, WBUV, the one and only BU, hey. WBUV. Great to have you, sir. Hey, Buck. How you doing? I'm good, man. Thank you for calling in. What's up? Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Charles Spurgeon. Uh, not off the top of my head, no. Uh, anyway, he was, he was a preacher uh, back in the 1800s in England, and he had a sermon on uh, Sermon of the Seasons is what it was called. And his text was taken from, a, if, if I may read a verse, uh, out of Genesis 8.22. While the earth remaineth seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. I don't care what the left says. I don't care how much they scream and kick and holler. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. The water is rising. It's not going to happen. They're, they're lunatics. 
basically lunatics. Yeah, well, this is a this for them, and and Doug, I, I say this uh, with all re- respect to my my fellow fellow Christians, and that I know that bringing this up, you know, makes it sound like I'm uh, equating them, but I'm not. But th- they think that they are. T- th- this is a religious belief for people who think they are too smart for religion. That people that believe deeply in climatology tend not to believe in, uh, certainly to believe in in, in Christianity, uh, don't believe in Jesus, don't believe in in the Bible. Uh, overwhelmingly, they view themselves as above what they think of as, as superstitions. Meanwhile, they attach all of what we, one would think of as as religious significance to this climate change stuff. Right? They have a they have indulgences, which is the carbon based. Uh, tax credits that they want to set up, right? So people can buy the right to pollute more. Uh, it, it, they have a, a an end of time story. If we don't do this, the the world is going to end. I mean, there are so many parallels with religious belief, but their religious belief is based on you using the right kind of light bulb and riding a bicycle to work, not police, not on the the words of Jesus Christ. And uh, you know what I mean? That's this is what they don't under this is what they don't see. Yeah, no, look, I I hear you. Uh, and, and and one other one other thing, uh, in all their uh, intelligence, in the book of Daniel, and and I'm paraphrasing, I'm not quoting it word for word, but it, but he he writes, he says, man will become so smart that they become stupid. Well, that's certainly the case on college campuses and with the media across the country. Uh, Doug, thank you for calling in from Alabama. Great to have you on, sir. Um, our friend Charles Cook over at National Review, I wanted to get this in makes a very important point on uh, nationalreview.com, um, and I will read it, and it will not be as awesome as if Charles were reading it because of his unfair it, unfair British accent advantage uh, between him and Tom Rogan. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know who attracts ladies more easily in the pub just by reciting a few verses, but uh, Tom Rogan and, and Charles Cook, both friends and, and writers from National Review that both got those cool accents. But here's what Charles writes over at National Review. For far too many environmentalists, disagreement with their coveted remedies or even their non-binding accords, which is what this is, the Paris Agreement, is akin to denial of the ailment per se. Thus, to oppose, say, a carbon tax is to be accused of hating science. To dislike the Paris Accord is to be pro-coal. And to propose that we are just as likely to lower emissions sustainably by by replacing traditional methods of energy procurement with fracking or nuclear power as to give carte blanche to Tom Steyer is to be a wannabe killer of Indonesian kids. Exactly. Totally right from from Charles Cook there. If you even propose a less radical solution than what they say, if you even say, I agree with all of your underlying premises, I just think we should approach it this way. It's as though they are members of the Politburo and they have their orders from Stalin and those are the only orders, the only approaches that can be allowed, the only solutions to the problem, and to even question, never mind to come up with other solutions, is to be a traitor and to be a counter-revolutionary, to be dangerous and to be dealt with as such. That is modern climate hysteria uh, for you, my friends. Um, anyway, we're not going to talk only about this today. I'm also going to talk to you a bit about Putin, what he said today. Uh, terrorism and jihad in the Philippines. I'm going to do a deep dive on that, plus some complete madness going on in a college campus that I don't think you've heard about yet. We'll hit that and more coming up back uh, right after this break. Team, stay with us.
Russia looms so large, my friends. Russia, Russia, Russia. It's what we hear about all the time. I love the Hunt for Red October really holds up. It's a great movie. Um, you had Vladimir Putin earlier today uh, saying some stuff that has, uh, let's just say, caught the attention of the media in this country. Uh, people are uh, wondering what exactly the premier of Russia is getting at here. Here's what he said in the Russian, of course. <laughs> Также и хакеры. Они проснулись сегодня, прочитали, что там что-то происходит в международных отношениях. You're like, Buck, why are you playing that random Russian stuff for me? I just wanted to give you the authentic feel of Putin talking to a bunch of reporters about some stuff. And here's what he's here's what he's saying. He says that hackers are free people, just like artists who wake up in the morning in a good mood and start painting. And then he goes on to say that likewise, hackers get up in the morning and read the news about international affairs. If they feel patriotic, they try to make what they see as a fair contribution to the struggle against those who speak ill of Russia. Is that possible? Yes, theoretically. What's most important, and this is my deep belief, hackers can't crucially influence an election in a foreign country. No information will change the minds of a foreign people and the outcome of an election. So that's my answer. The Russian government is not supporting hackers at any level and doesn't plan to. So, of course, this doesn't in any way quiet those who believe that there's a massive conspiracy underway, um, that the Russians using hackers, of course, in unofficial ways, but using hackers nonetheless, had a hand in turning the election for Donald Trump by getting into Podesta and the DNC emails. You know, you all you all know that. I, I don't need to go over this. But I, I do think that this newest uh, element added into it, that the Russian uh, Russian president is out there saying uh, that Vladimir Putin is saying that patriotically minded uh, Russians might have been involved in cyber attacks uh, this is, of course, going to just add fuel to the fire of those who believe all along that this was Russia's intent, that Russia colluded, that Russia was uh, the reason that Hillary Clinton lost the election. But you see, this is why the, the stories about fake news and all, all the other stuff that's currently getting so much attention uh, will never have resolution of it. L- let me walk you through where this goes. You've got Putin saying stuff about how uh, you know he doesn't want there to be or how he doesn't believe that there's any connection between the Russian government and hackers. You could claim that somebody below Putin's level ordered it, right? I, I think that's unlikely. I'm, I'm just theoretically here, okay? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what MSNBC and CNN does. I'm just asking questions. But theoretically, somebody below Putin's level may have come up with the plan to influence the election. No, maybe they just somebody who's like, uh, you know, number 10 on the list of power at the Kremlin, just hates Hillary. You know, who knows? I know Donald Trump for a while was saying it could be some 400-pound guy sitting in his mom's basement or something. I think that's very unlikely. Um, But Putin is at least opening up the possibility now to, yes, there were Russians who were hacking. Now, whether 
whether that will go anywhere or not, I mean, you already have most Democrats who not only believe that there is this intelligence assessment that is universal that says that Russia hacked the election, um, which it says that there was a Russian effort to influence the election, but there's a lot of influencing of the election, right? There are multi-billion dollar election campaigns underway. There's a vast U.S. media that takes part in all of this. You think some Russian propaganda effort is going to make any noise at all? I mean, this is, I think it's just so far-fetched still. But we, we never get answers, and this goes into the fake news part of all of this. Have you seen that intelligence community report? No, I haven't. And by the way, this is the, a favorite tool of conspiracy theorists. Because at some level, to be informed, you have to trust those who are informing you. When I uh, am giving you information about, say, yesterday, Afghanistan, yeah, okay, I spent considerable time in Afghanistan, but even when I was in Afghanistan, I was having to read reports from people elsewhere in the country. Right? You have to rely on information flow from others to be informed. You can't be everywhere, and it can't be a way to shut down discussion to say, oh, well, you weren't there, man. You didn't see it. Okay, that may well be true, but... That doesn't mean that the opinion is invalid and that you can't have a very good understanding of what's happening in a, happening in a place if you have good sourcing there. If, if media outlets are painting the proper picture, you can really have a, a good sense of what's going on in any number of, of countries and places. So, uh, But how this applies to Russia and hacking and cyber hacking is that if you don't, uh, if you, you don't believe the news outlets— then you obviously never come to any conclusion on this because so much of it has been their analysis, right? So much of this, and also their, their anonymous sources. And they don't even have the capability to look at hacking. Let's say what Putin said today in this press conference uh, in St. Petersburg. Let's say uh, that it does become accepted that there were Russians, that everyone agrees at some point in the future, which I don't even know this will ever happen, that Russians were hacking and that this was their plan all along. Uh, you'll have to take someone's word for that. I don't have the forensic ability uh, nor the time or the inclination to try and go through all the digital code. I mean, I, you know, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. I have no idea how one would go about figuring out if the Russians hacked it. Plus, I don't even know legally how I could conduct that investigation on my own if I wanted to. So you see what I'm saying? You have to trust the reporting of others at some level on this or not. And even if Russian hackers, that becomes a universally accepted story here. And I think it's pretty close to that. But there are still many I, I know who don't buy into the Russian hacking theory at all. Not that the Russians hacked the election, but that there were Russian hackers trying to get into email accounts in this country and do bad things to help Trump or just to mess up our election or whatever. Um, but then you'll never be able to prove, unless you have some level of access that I can't imagine, that the Russian state, that Vladimir Putin was involved in it. And Putin's out there saying, even if you could prove that, even if, theoretically, the president of the United States, or let's say the, the head of the intelligence community, which is technically the DNI, although really the CIA director tends to, tends to run stuff a lot of the time. But anyway, let's say the director of national intelligence shows a report to the American people that somehow proves 
uh, and, and shows the work, too, which they would never do. They would never expose sources and methods, but somehow proves that there's some Russian tie-in to the hacking and maybe even some Russian official told somebody that, yeah, we were behind this. And, you know, even presenting all of that evidence, there would be many who would say that this is all part of the conspiracy, that this is uh, this has been faked, that there are ways to hide or even misdirect with your cyber trail, that there are ways to make it seem like Russian hackers were the ones when it could have been, you know, others. It could have been North Korean hackers or Iranian hackers or hackers in you know, Brazil or who knows where, anywhere, pick a country, doesn't matter. So this never gets completely solved. The only way that you can really end this discussion is to be somebody who just comes to the, the conclusion, which I've come to a long time ago, that the hacking didn't really matter, that hacking is a fact of modern life, that it happens to private companies, to governments, and we shouldn't attribute this incredible power to Russian cyber activities uh, and suggest that they would be able to throw a U.S. election, um, that that's giving them way too much credit. That's giving them way too much um, power. And I just re- refuse to think that that's what's the what's the reality here. So I just thought it was interesting. Putin saying, you know, yeah, I mean, maybe there were some Russian. I mean, maybe there were some Russian hackers. I mean, you, know, you don't know. Maybe, you know, like this guy is hacking. He doesn't like what you say about Russia. And, you know, you go from there. You know what you mean, my friend? Uh, so there we have it. Latest from Putin. From the Putin's mouth, if you will. Again, hit a quick break. Your team will be right back. Let's talk about jihad in the Philippines. Now, this has gotten uh, some attention in the last few days because a city, Marawi, uh, in the Philippines was, uh, well, partially overrun by Mate and Abu Sayyaf rebels. I'll get into these groups in a moment. Uh, but there is a, a longstanding uh, Muslim extremist insurgency in the Philippines. And it really splinters into, on the one hand, a separatist faction. On the other hand, a jihadist, global jihadist faction along the lines of Al-Qaeda. But before I I get too far into those details, a couple of notes on the news, on what's happening right now. There were reports of a terror, early reports of what seemed to be an apparent terrorist attack Uh, in Manila, the capital city of the Philippines, at a well-known resort complex full of shops, stores that are frequented by international travelers, by Westerners, by Americans. Latest reporting on that is that it was a a robbery attempt, and that's why there was gunfire. It was not, in fact, a terrorist act. Uh, But Marawi, um, what's been going on in Marawi, is, in fact, an extension of longstanding uh, tensions between the Muslim minority in the southern Philippines and the rest of the country. Backstory here is totally necessary, uh, so I suppose we're in the midst of an on-the-spot deep dive uh, before I can get into why there's fighting going on in the Philippines. It's important to know how we got to uh, this point. Now, uh, the Philippines is about 90 million people uh, live there, and only about 5% of the country is Muslim. So when you when you look at this, you think to yourself, this is an example of a small Muslim insurgency in a much larger 
Christian country. Um, this is a function of colonialism. Uh, the Philippines, named for King Philip of Spain, uh, were colonized. Uh, the Philippines were, were colonized and in the 16th century by the Spanish. And so that's how you have a country that's in Southeast Asia that's predominantly uh, Catholic, in fact, and, and went through centuries of a period of uh, proselytization and conversion. But there had always been in the South, in places like uh, Maguindanao and Sulu uh, and uh, Mindanao, uh, places that had a Muslim-majority population. Now, the Philippines are an archipelago. It's a series of islands. So on some of the islands, there were um, Muslim. There were Muslims that had been living there for uh, quite some time, in fact, before the Spanish got to them. Uh, you know, the, the, the Sultanate of Sulu, for example, um, stretches all the way back to an Arab trader in the late 14th century. So it, through the expansion of Islam through, uh, through traders, uh, there was actually contact with the Philippines before you had the uh, Spanish colonial takeover of the Philippines. And of course, we took the Philippines from the Spanish at the turn of the, uh, the, the 20th century. So, um, which also, by the way, resulted in what's known as the Moro War, and the Moro War is a reference. So the Moro War is the U.S. in the early part of the 20th century suppressing a Muslim insurgency in the Philippines after we had taken the Philippines from the Spanish in the Spanish-American War. Um, so, you know, the Philippines was under American rule from 1898 or so till 1946. Uh, and during that period of time, there were hostilities. People have referred to it as the Moro War. And this is a very interesting connection, I think. Just linguistically, uh, Moro is what the uh, Spanish Philippine uh, colonial uh, subjects referred to. That's what they call the Muslims. And it is a reference to the Moors uh, or the Moros who invaded Spain, who invaded the Iberian Peninsula and were eventually uh, pushed out uh, during the Reconquista in 1492. But you will recall from the Muslim expansion into Europe that, that the uh, forces of Islam made their way all the way up into what they called Andalusia, which is modern Spain and the Iberian Peninsula, and they held it for centuries. And it wasn't until 1492 that finally the Spanish were able to take back uh, that land. So they referred to them then as the Moors or Moros and Muslims in the Philippines by the Spanish colonial uh, authorities and, and by Spaniards in the Philippines were called Moros. And so some referred to the U.S. fight there as the Moro War. Um, and there's actually a, a book uh, about the Moro re rebel or people call it the Moro Rebellion um, as well. And uh, that's, again, a reference to ethnic Muslims living in the Philippines. So there's a longstanding uh, tradition of, uh, let's say, difficult relations between this small Muslim minority in the Philippines in the south, relegated really to a few main islands, 
and the rest of the Philippine archipelago. So in the 20th century, though, that's where we get into how does this turn into how does this become a place where we're talking about jihad all of a sudden? Well, you have separatist inclinations for parts of the southern Philippines that had wanted to be uh, Muslim enclaves, if you will, sultanates or emirates for a long time, as they had been at one point in the past. Um, Oh, by the way, as an aside, we from the Moro Rebellion or the Moro War, uh, we get words like amok, like running amok. Also, boondocks is a term that comes uh, from from the Philippines. So we have some words that came along as a result of that. There, There's also a, a story out there that the 45 caliber sidearm um, was introduced in the American uh, military and widespread use during the Moro Rebellion. But I looked into that more. There already were 45s uh, that were in some circulation. But because of the tactic of attacking in dense jungle, uh, with machetes that some of the more rebellion fighters would engage in. They wanted something heavier for more stoppage power than a nine millimeter, but it, it didn't get completely developed. The 45 caliber handgun wasn't developed entirely because of the more rebellion. It just became, it, it came into wider usage as a sidearm. At least that's from, uh, from my read of it. That's what I believe the progression was. So, okay, so back to now uh, the jihadism and, and terrorism and how that affects the Philippines and why do we have cities now that are uh, being either overrun or at least threatened with being overrun in a country that, keep in mind, is a, is a U.S. ally, uh, Christian-majority nation, has very good relations with the United States. Um, and it, we, of course, gave the Philippines its independence in 1946, so it's been quite a while. Uh they have a couple of major Islamic fundamentalist or jihadist, well, Islamic fundamentalist groups. Let's not say jihadist per se, both of, of, of whom have engaged in terrorist attacks on the one hand uh, and the terrorist attacks that you would think you would think of uh, bombings, executions, kidnappings. Um, there have been a, a, a number in recent decades of very serious uh, terrorist uh terrorist attacks in the Philippines. The two groups are, generally speaking, and there's a lot of offshoots and factions, and I mean, I could do a three-hour show, but you probably won't want to hear three hours on this, on just all the different aspects of Islamic extremism in the Philippines, which is, again, what we're talking about now, because there's some ongoing fighting. There have been 100 killed in the uh, fight over Marawi, 100-plus killed. Uh, You've got people that are trapped there. You've got the military moving in. So the the extremist groups are the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, which is more of a separatist, a classic separatist insurgency. And you have Abu Sayyaf, which is father, uh, which means father of the sword in Arabic, which is a a more jihadist Al Qaeda like entity. So the Moro Islamic Liberation Front uh, has been fighting for uh, for decades in the Philippines trying to establish a separate enclave, a separate state uh, f- that will be entirely uh, controlled by Muslims. So that's that's been in existence for, for a while now. And again, Moro, because the Muslim minority in the Philippines is referred to as Moro, uh, they want a liberation front. This is a reminder. It's really a throwback 
to the old days of these Marxist separatist groups that just wanted autonomy for one ethnic or religious or ethnic religious uh, or other minority group in a country and engaged in violence. Right. That's the old terrorism. Um, but that's mostly been what the MILF, as it is known, the Moro, it, that is what it is called, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front has been trying to do. Um, and they reached in recent years a, a deal with the government. Uh, so so they're the insurgency group that will use terrorism. They fall in that category of insurgency group that will use terrorism, but will uh, will also negotiate with the government as legitimate and has a list of demands. So they're in a, in a different they're more of an ethnic nationalist or r- religious nationalist separatist group. Um, then you get into Abu Sayyaf and uh, Malte, which is a the group right now that's fighting in Marawi in the Philippines, has connections to and they believe fights alongside Abu Sayyaf. It's not entirely clear. Look, the reporting on all this from the Philippines is not is not exacting. I mean, they, they don't have the, the best uh, in resources for journalists and coverage you're talking about. A tremendous variety of islands. Some are very disconnected from what's going on in the capital in Manila and and feel very decentralized from government authority to begin with. So getting granular data and information on these different Muslim extremist groups on the Philippines is hard. It's hard to come by. And of course, there's also a lot of bluster and there are a lot of uh, people that are trying to make these groups seem perhaps more connected than they are, make them seem like they are part of the global jihad. That's where we get into Abu Sayyaf and possible connections to the Islamic State. Uh, so there's longstanding tensions, fighting between the uh, Moro Muslim minority in the Philippines and, well, the Spanish colonial government and the American colonial government, then against the Japanese when they seize the Philippine Islands. Uh, so there has been longstanding fighting, uh, but there have also been inroads made by jihadist entities. In fact, Abu Sayyaf, as I said, father of the sword, is a terrorist group that operates in the Philippines, in the southern portion of the Philippines, where there's um, Muslim pockets of, uh, of Muslims. Uh, they have They have executed hostages that they've taken. They have blown up marketplaces. They have done all of the classic jihadist actions that we've come to know that we associate it with al qaeda and other groups now there are there were early connections uh, reported on between abu sayyaf stretching back uh, to the old days of al qaeda uh, being the primary jihadist threat in the world there are connections between al qaeda and abu sayyaf but today the primary concern is about the islamic state's connection to this group abu sayyaf uh, ISIS last summer put out a uh, propaganda video in languages, including uh, Tagalog, which is uh, a, a, a primary language spoken in the Philippines, um, as well as uh, Malay and, and a few other Southeast Asian, uh, a few other Southeast Asian languages, specifically exhorting jihadists in the, those areas, so Malaysia, the Philippines. Uh, Indonesia, not to go try and join the Islamic State in uh, Syria. And they've tried, by the way, this is an ISIS uh, strategy that they've deployed or they've used 
for North Africans, for Europeans in particular, saying, no, no, stay and do jihad at home. Don't try to come to Syria because you might get caught and you'll be useless if you're caught and in a prison cell. So it was about a year ago, uh, according to CSIS, that this got put out there and it was telling people, uh, including members of Abu Sayyaf, which also has splinter factions and uh, and, and other jihadist entities that are smaller, that work with it. I mean, to give you a sense of how complicated this gets in the Philippines, there's the Moro National Liberation Front and the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. And one was negotiating with the government at one point, and the other was upset that the other one was negotiating with the government. I mean, it's a lot of little islands, a lot of little factions, a lot of people with uh, different grievances. But the jihadists, in some cases different, in some cases the same, uh, the jihadists in the area are a concern because ISIS is losing, as we know, ground in Iraq and Syria. And as it continues to suffer uh, from the coalition efforts from the air as well as proxy forces on the ground, as it continues to suffer uh, losses, it may be looking to expand its so-called caliphate into other areas. And the, the nightmare scenario would be a situation where you have a group like Abu Sayyaf um, taking uh, territory and being able to withstand a government uh, counterterrorism action and establish a Southeast Asian version of the Islamic State. Um, now, this sounds, of course, like how, how could this happen? And, you know, it, it's almost fanciful from the jihadist point of view. But keep in mind, uh, Mindanao, which is home to millions of people, has had in, in the Philippines has had uh, Islamic extremism for uh, for well, in the modern context, at least for decades, there are long-standing roots of jihadism here, and co there are connections to the global jihad, certainly online. And there have been reports of training and funding from some of those groups, like Jamaa Islamiyah, like Al Qaeda, to um, Abu Sayyaf. Uh, now, Jamaa Islamiyah is the most well-known jihadist terrorist group in Indonesia, which is the largest Muslim-majority country in the world. And so you can see that this area of the world is one that we often don't think of. We, don't, uh, we think of Islamic extremism as primarily a South Asia, Mideast, North Africa phenomenon, as well as, of course, the attacks you know, here and, and in Europe. But I mean in terms of uh, large-scale jihad operating uh, with holding territory and people training and raising raising armies, in the case of the Taliban or the Islamic State, to fight, uh, ISIS may be trying to expand its footprint in a place like the Philippines and hope that there's a domino effect and that there will be greater extremism in Indonesia, in Malaysia, and in other pockets of Islam in the region, Indonesia being, as I said, largest Muslim majority country by population in the world. So if you have a real destabilization and you have jihadists uh, that are able to have foreign fighters joining them, which, by the way, has been reported in Marawi in this recent round of fighting in the Philippines with jihadists there. The authorities in the Philippines are saying, look, there are people coming from in the, from the Middle East and, and elsewhere to fight here. These are global jihadist foreign fighters showing up in the Philippines, embedding themselves in what has been largely a local uh, fight, a local terrorist action, and perhaps trying to expand this into be yet another franchise, uh, active franchise of the Islamic State, and to take and hold territory. So we will keep an eye on the Philippines as a terrorism problem, and uh, we're also going to hit a quick break here, and I will be 
right back. Welcome back, Team Buck. I celebrate something of an anniversary today uh, on June 1st. Well, first of all, it is my little sister's birthday. Uh, my little sister, Daisy, who is amazing and awesome, and it's her birthday. So that's uh, I wanted to give her a little shout-out because um, she's the greatest little sister in the world. Uh, but also, um, today is, roughly speaking, uh, my sixth year anniversary of uh, being in media, of leaving uh, government work and this whole crazy process I've gone through from CIA analyst to uh, website writer to TV guest to TV host to radio host to guest host to national syndication. Uh, it's all It all happened starting in... Uh, June of 2011, and I just, if you don't mind, I thought I would take a couple moments to give you a little sense of my journey. I often get uh, emails or Facebook messages, people say, how would I transition into media? And I always have to tell people that this was not the plan. Uh, I did not have a plan to get into media. It just happened. I was uh, at the NYPD Intelligence Division at the time, uh, I had left the CIA and was working at NYPD Intelligence here in New York City. People always ask, well, why did you do that? I had actually taken a, a leave of absence from the agency and worked at the NYPD. Uh, so I could go back to the CIA if I had wanted to, but I was on uh, a leave of absence status. And uh, they, well, the answer is I wanted to be in New York and I want to be with my family. I had been away from my family for almost five years at that point in the CIA, as well as uh, including some travel abroad. And I just missed my hometown. I am a New York City, New York City guy, uh, despite the fact that I don't care much about the Yankees or the Mets. I'm, I'm New York through and through. Uh, if I ever get picked up by a great New York City affiliate radio station, I promise I'll become a big Yankees or Mets fan or both. Uh, I do like the Giants, so I'll go out and say that. Um, but I was thinking about applying, or I was going to go in the private sector. Uh, my idea had been that I would uh, go to business school. I had gotten offers from a couple of places, and it was June of 2011. And out of nowhere, I get an email. And the email is from a friend of a friend. And it's, hey, I was at a conference and there's someone that I think you should reach out to, someone that you should talk to. Because I brought you up as a conservative who's leaving the intelligence community, going to be out of, the gov out of government work. And I thought maybe, you know, you would just be able to uh, do some writing while you're in college. I mean, sorry, while you're in uh, grad school, getting an MBA, a master's in business administration. I was going to be an MBA guy. And then hopefully go work in corporate America and, you know, find a lovely little lady to settle down with and have some kids and get an English bulldog and call it a day. That, that, was, the, that was the plan. And I saw this email and I responded and I was put in touch with a woman named uh, Betsy Morgan. And she had previously been the CEO of the Huffington Post, a site I'm sure you're all quite familiar with. And I sat down with her, and initially the meeting, we were in this big, empty 
office space in Midtown Manhattan, right, right in the in the heart of the of the action in terms of corporate New York City stuff. You know, blocks away from Fox News and uh, right near uh, NBC and uh, Rockefeller Center. And I, I sat down with her in this empty office space, and there was nothing. There was a, a card table, like a card table you'd buy off of Amazon.com for ten dollars, and a little fold and fold out chairs. And we sat down. And I remember talking to her a little bit about how, you know, I just I loved conservative media. I had been a, a longtime consumer of Fox News. Uh, Drudge Report had been my homepage for uh, over a decade at that point. And uh, I used to read National Review and Town Hall. And um, I, I was somebody who was just always consuming as much conservative media as I possibly could. Uh, including in my government days when I kept it mostly quiet that I was a conservative because we all know that it's uh, not, well, the liberals will get mad at you when you're a conservative in government if you talk about it. So I, I had this meeting to sit down and to uh, Betsy's, well, I would hope to her credit, if you agree, um, decided that I should on the spot, more or less, decide after a very lengthy application process for business school, um, give up going at least for a year. I could always reapply after a year and come join the circus, so to speak. Go work for this crazy new company called The Blaze that was being started by this guy, Glenn Beck, who would later on become my boss for uh, the better part of five years or five years plus. And uh, I sat down with Betsy and she said, you know, you should just come work for us. Uh, just from talking to her about my background and everything else, you should come work for us and you need to go meet with Glenn. And I sat down with Glenn and we talked, I don't know, for 30 or 40 minutes. And I do remember at the end of the conversation, he said to me, you know, you're, you're the kind of guy that I need to have around this place. Uh, and it was maybe a few meetings later when I shook his hand and I just said, I just want to let you know, Glenn, I'm I'm all in. I know at first this was kind of a out of nowhere thing, but I'm all in on, on doing this. And I was, uh, so from there I began working at the blaze.com, not as a, a pundit, not as someone who was going to be on TV a lot or anything like that. I was just working mostly remotely, but sometimes in the newsroom in Midtown, which was that same office where Betsy Morgan had initially brought me in. Remember she'd been the CEO of the Huffington Post, very, high-profile job, and uh, I was working for her and for, for Glenn Beck, and I was writing for TheBlaze.com, and I will say that that was a very uh, educational experience. I think that website writing is a great way to get to know the media business. It forces you to be really on top of what's going on uh, day in and day out. I do think there are some pressures on it like there are in many industries that are not helpful that are not constructive uh clickbait overselling headlines uh what's the difference between content theft and content sharing uh, there's a lot of stuff about website being a website writer um as opposed to a traditional columnist by the way i remember i, I was just posting stories i wasn't at the time hired to share my opinion in fact Early on, I butted heads with some of the other members of the new staff because I wanted to analyze things. I wanted to uh, be an opinionator, if you will, a decider. 
Uh, and they said, well, that's not your job. Your job is just to post stories, uh, use the associated press feed that we pay for and cut and paste and, and uh, add elements to it. And that was what I was hired to do. So I, I learned a lot about the, uh, the business that way. And, and of course, I think later on when I got more involved in TV at the Blaze TV, having website experience was uh, illuminating. Uh, it definitely put me in very close, constant contact with our readers. And I had this sense from the start of being in media. Remember, I had no formal media training. I'd never been to journalism school. I'd never even taken a journalism class. Uh, the only thing that might even come close to media training was my time as an 18-year-old interning for CBS Evening News with Dan Rather, uh, where the executive producer at the time, Jim Murphy, would later on go to be the executive producer of the uh, morning show on CNN. And it was funny because one day I was booked as a guest on the show, and sure enough, the guy who had been the EP when I was an intern carrying around heavy boxes, literally that was part of my job, carrying on boxes of VHS tapes, uh, and also running scripts around, pulling actual physical scripts off the printer and giving them to various members of the CBS staff. And then I was in, on the show as a guest. Now, all of a sudden, I was talent 13. No, gosh, man, I can't even do the math. 15. No. Yeah. 15 years later. I think that's right. Maybe 16 years later. So um, that was quite a that was quite a moment. That was a funny, funny experience. Yeah, but so I was a website writer, and then I um, learned that I wanted to do more TV because I felt like that is, for one, a necessary step in, in growing an audience and a following. People see you on TV. They have a better understanding of who you are, and I think your writing can speak with, uh, with, with an even louder voice, both in terms of reach as well as those who see you on TV feel like they know you in some way and they have heard your voice and seen your face and your expressions and so when you write there is an additional layer that comes across for people that believe in what you're doing believe in what I was doing I started doing more TV and what initially started was that I was just another guy in the newsroom who would sometimes join Glenn when he was off the show and he had a guest host they would do these panels with different people from the website. So this is, I'm at theblaze.com. I've left the CIA. I've left the NYPD. I have said no to business school. I had to write out a check to hold a spot at one of those business schools. That was like all the money I had in the world at the time. I cashed out my 401k so I could afford to apply to business school uh, because the applications are very expensive, and the, the, the tests and everything cost thousands and thousands of dollars just to apply. Uh, and I didn't have a very big 401k, so I cashed it out. Uh, but I remember I got a T-shirt from one of those business schools that I always say is my, uh, was my most expensive T-shirt of all time. It definitely cost thousands of dollars uh, because I didn't end up going to that school, but they sent me the T-shirt because I had saved a spot, which was fine, by the way. They have a wait list of hundreds of people. I mean, they couldn't have been happier to just take my money and give my spot to somebody else the next day when I when I told them I wasn't going to be attending. So uh, it was quite a risk in retrospect. I threw myself into this, and the chances of success in media in, in any real way are remote. Uh, the chances of even staying in this business. I know many people that were in it when I started who are no longer in it. And so that's how I, I ended up started transitioning into a 
writing for TheBlaze.com, but also then doing more on the TV side. And today is six years of me working in media. It was the first week of June when I decided, when I handed in my final uh, you know, resignation at the NYPD and decided that I was going to go join Glenn Beck and try a media career. Um, anyway, I want, I want to talk to you about the radio side of this, which is my, my, my favorite part of the story, in just a second. But you're going to have to uh, stay with me, uh, please, through the break. And we'll be back in just a few minutes. Hold on a second. Welcome back, Team Buck. Just telling the story of uh, my transition into media from being an intelligence officer, because I, I get asked a fair amount. It's an unusual transition, to be sure. Uh, and June 1st is really the, this is when I decided. I mean, this is the, an, this is the anniversary of that process, uh, whereby I decided to leave behind my life in government, leave behind grad school, and the couple of hundred thousand dollars uh, of debt that I would have accrued had I actually gone and try to make a go of it in media. And uh, many of you listening to me right now uh, have been with me on radio for four years because it was a, a couple of years in uh, during my time at The Blaze. I'll skip beyond a little bit on the TV, although one day I'll tell you stories about what it was like to be on that Blaze TV show where I was the only in-house talent that they had and I wasn't considered talent I was just considered a guy from the newsroom that they put at the table with other people who were talents all of whom were older than me had bigger media profiles had worked in media for years uh S.E. Cup Amy Holmes Will Kane uh, later on Tara Setmayer and uh, they they put me at this table and I was just supposed to be a representative of the Blaze newsroom I really wasn't supposed to be a, a pundit talent uh, I don't like that word talent right it's a little it's a little grandiose for my taste, but that's what is said in the business. So I uh, had to try out initially. They had tryouts for everyone in the newsroom who wanted to, and they did test shows. Um, and I was the one at the end of all these tryouts, I was the one chosen. Um, and I remember one of the segments we talked about had some, it was some issue of constitutional law. And it just so happened that one of my close friends at the time also happened to be one of the most brilliant constitutional scholars and, and legal minds I know. And we had been talking about the issue at some length before I was doing this segment. Uh, so I was able to, I will say, uh, show a, a depth of knowledge that was unrivaled at that table, um, to be sure. And I'd like to think that wasn't the only time that happened, but it, certainly on that day it was. Uh, and I, I remembered... And later on, I, I you know, established very good uh, relationships over time with everybody on that show, and, and they've all gone on to bigger and better things, and I'm very, very happy for all of them. Uh, but, I, but it was radio where I really knew I, I wanted to make uh, a mark, and I started doing radio in 2013, so four years ago, um, and I just went to our radio director at The Blaze and said, look, I, I want to do some radio and they said well we'll give you a weekend show for three hours you're not going to get paid a dime for it and we'll see how you do and that was the birth of the freedom hut um, that 
was when I was able to create my own show, my own world of analysis and, and just sharing thoughts and news and information of all kinds and telling stories and growing this uh, wonderful tribe of uh, fellow patriots um, known as Team Buck. It started with a Saturday show. Some of you will hear this sometimes when I get callers. Uh, they'll say, you know, original squad. What they mean by that is they've been listening to me now for four years, starting when I began on Saturday, and no one had any idea who this kid was doing a radio show. No one thought the radio show would work at first, I think, or very few people did. Uh, it actually caught on very quickly, and with uh, a number of radio shows and hosts at uh, The Blaze, uh, within a matter of about six months, I was the second most listened to host on the Blaze Radio Network after Glenn Beck, who many of you are familiar with, who is, of course, a, a huge name in radio. So it was uh, it was quite a um, quite a rise, quite a journey, uh, starting out doing a show when also and this is just as an aside, I had been uh, diagnosed celiac um, pretty recently to the show. And just starting the show and had been really sick uh, for months before then. And no one knew why. And there was the anxiety of, you know, why am I so sick? And I'm like disappearing. First, you lose some weight from being unhealthy. And people say, oh, you look good. And then they realize, oh, no, this isn't that kind of weight. Uh, this isn't that sort of weight loss. This is bad. Uh, but people stuck with me. There were people who believed in me uh, starting at the, at the earliest days of that show. Um, and they came to be known as Team Buck for obvious reasons and call it the Freedom Hut um, because that was what I wanted to call my CIA office. But it was a joke. We were ne we never actually called it that. But that was always my suggestion that we should call my office in D.C. the Freedom Hut. Um, so now I have a Freedom Hut and I have all of you listening. And um, I have to say that this is the, uh, the the realization that I have today and one of the reasons why I'm talking to you, and some of you have heard parts of this story or maybe even all this story before, is that uh, it's been six years and here I am on a syndicated radio show, um, came, out of, came out of nowhere, nobody thought this would happen, and now I'm on over 100 stations and we're growing, our podcast numbers are fantastic, please keep helping me push those, that looks great for the show. Um, and the show is always evolving, and I'm always trying to make it better and add new elements into it. And uh, when I say that I am honored and, and humbled and grateful to have all of you listening, I, I really mean it because I, this all just came from, well, your support and just determination and belief on my side that we could make all this happen. So it's my uh, six-year media anniversary, in a sense. It led to the creation of the Freedom Hut. Um, six years ago, if you had told me I would be on this radio station right now talking to you uh, or on over 100 stations across the country speaking to you and, and a national audience with Premier Radio Networks, the best radio syndicator in the country, uh, I would have said, no way. So it's important sometimes to take a moment to uh, be thankful. And uh, I'm thankful for this show for uh, six years uh, in media. And it's only been possible because of all of you. And I've got a lot more great stuff planned. So thank you, team. Um, I'll be right back.
That gives you a sense of the protests, the recent protests at Evergreen State College. Now, this is a place that is on the, the cutting edge of leftist lunacy. Uh, Evergreen State College uh, is a place where there was recently a, a mandated day of absence for white people. Think about that for a moment. There was a day of absence on, uh, in April at this school where students, predominantly minority students, demanded that fellow white students and faculty stay off campus. Now, there is some history of people when they want to make a point about oppression or not being uh, given their full due of deciding to stay home. You certainly have the agency as a person, as a human being, to not go to work, to not leave your home, to not go to school. But to demand that others not go to school that they are paying for, to demand that other professors not go to a campus where they are paid to teach students who are paid or are paying to study there is a whole other level of leftist lunacy demand. Uh, and I have to say, y you, you read about this story, and there's a, a recent uh, opinion column in the Wall Street Journal from one of the professors involved about this, and it is almost hard to believe, but this is where we are. You see, pr progressivism has to continue on. It, it, it must consume, uh, it must destroy, it, it must uh, find new targets because if it had to actually stay still, if the progressive movement was, was not able to just scream about the next injustice, we would see that they never fix anything. It's not about justice, that the new left is just about power and about uh, self-aggrandizement, self-righteousness, and self-indulgence. Um, it is, of course, an elevation of the self through a collective approach, right, a collectivist approach. I am part of this mass of people making demands, therefore I am a better person. But imagine this, Evergreen State College in Washington State has a day of a mandated absence for white people. Leave the campus, white people. This is all real. You can read about it in the Wall Street Journal. We'll have a piece today. Uh, we have a piece today up on BuckSexton.com with some of the details. Uh, but a, a, a forced day of segregation is what this amounts to, and yet we are supposed to look at this in terms other than complete uh, uh, outrage. Because, of course, these are uh, minority students making these demands. And I, I couldn't play the rest of that video for you from Evergreen State College because it was so full of profanity. Uh, you have students screaming profanity at teachers. You have students asking teachers questions in front of a mob. And when the teacher tries to respectfully answer, students shouting over and cursing at those professors. Now, as somebody who went to a high school on a full, uh, I went to a private high school on a full scholarship. Uh, so each year my father had to write out a very, a painful check of about $15, I think, for laboratory fees. I still always thought it was funny the school made us pay that. But 
So I, I, I cost in high school $15 a year to go to school because of the generosity of people who had come before me. It was entirely funded by previous alumni, this private school in New York City called Regis. It receives no outside money other than from alumni in the initial endowment from a wealthy family here, a wealthy Christian family here in New York City that wanted a place for uh, young boys to get a top education who were Catholic. Um, the notion that I would have ever raised my voice in high school or, or in college at Amherst to a professor in this way, forget about it being completely disrespectful and and just odious, right? Just a disgusting behavior. I would have been, I would have been annihilated. I mean, I would have been kicked out of, I would have been kicked out of high school the same day. I don't even think they would let me collect my pens and pencils out of my desk. Right? It would have been the end. Uh, and in college, I think I would have likely not been very different. There would have been a disciplinary proceeding. I would have been at least kicked off campus for a semester, maybe for the year. I guess things have changed a lot. Now you have students chanting uh, about racist teachers, telling white teachers they are not allowed to show up because of their skin color on a day of work at their at their college. Other students, by the way, also told, think about the intimidation involved in that as well. So you're a white student at Evergreen State College. You want to show up even though there's this day of absence, this mandated day of absence for white people, mind you. Uh, do you think that you're going to be uh, treated kindly by the minority students who are part of this activist core that's screaming about um, black power and racist teachers. And no, I think any normal student would assume that there's the very real possibility that you would face physical violence were you to show up on campus. So there is also a, a, a not so veiled threat involved in much of this. Um, but when you get a little deeper and get a little deeper into the philosophy here, this isn't all that surprising. You see Evergreen State College, which views itself as on the progressive vanguard. It is a very left-wing school uh, by its own admission, but this is an accredited college. You go there and get a degree, and people treat it like any other college degree, I suppose, at least at some level. They have gone from what we could call a diversity and multicultural agenda, or the, the diversity agenda, I think is the best way to put it, to a, an equity agenda. They established last year something called the Equity Council. And according to their own uh, newspaper, student newspaper, it was to shift the college from, quote, a diversity agenda to an equity agenda by, among other things, requiring an equity justification for every faculty hire. This is uh, shocking, I know, when you hear, wait a second, what is, what is this? How, how could they mandate this for the school and the students are demanding this? And uh, what, what this is, ideologically speaking, is a takeover by what are often called uh, the critical race theorists. Now, the short version of critical race theorists, and they're really a, a series of scholars that it was originally critical legal theory and then it just became critical race theory but it comes from the 80s uh, from the dawn of really using political correctness and affirmative action and the law as a tool of enforcing equity on a racial and uh, gender and any 
oppressed group uh, on that basis. So the criti- critical race theory, uh, which is very similar, similar uh, is an offshoot of, of critical legal theory, uh, merely says that, well, not merely, but it says that all, uh, all aspects of society uh, are infused with racism and that all people, whether they themselves are racist or, or not, are products of a racist system and therefore they are benefiting from that and part of the oppression of others. Uh, you could say that critical race theory, which even before that, it's just critical theory. And then if you want to go even earlier than that, you can look at the, uh, the philosophical foundations of all this with people like Herbert Marcuse, uh, who did critical theory. And if you go even, if you go even deeper into Marcuse, you'll get into his uh, Heideggerian Marxism. Um, and so these were Marxists. Uh, these were Marxists in the mid, uh, in the early mid twentieth century, and the, their Marxist theories were built upon using uh, racial, uh, y- using a, a racial component as well. But of course, racism and an end to racism was always one of the great unfulfilled promises, um, stretching all the way back to, to Lenin and the Soviet uh, Soviet Revolution. Um, but they then so you had critical you had a critical theory, which is built on Marxism. So you have Marxism, critical theory, critical legal theory, critical race theory. And now you have equity agenda and the equity agenda is an expansion of other things you're already quite familiar with, like, you know, white privilege and an equality of ends, meaning that people now there's no such thing as merit. There's no such thing as hard work and earning what you have. Everything you have, if you are white, comes from a racist system that has given it to you, and you only have it because of the oppression of others, and therefore it is a duty, a moral, ethical, and legal duty of the college campus, of the society at large here in America, to make up for that. Uh, This is effectively, and it's not just for African Americans, but this would be a reparation or reparations for the inequities of our deeply racist, oppressive society. Uh, intersectionality is the way it's talked about today. By the way, if, if you listen back to the segment a couple of times, I know I'm using a lot of jargon, but this, this is the real meat of it. And this is more than you'll hear from uh, almost anybody else on the topic, because I, I studied this. I wrote my college thesis on campus speech codes, and it was all about Marcuse and critical race theory and postmodernism. And so I, I used to live, eat, sleep, breathe the dissection of this stuff. It's been a little while, but a lot of it has stayed with me. Uh, so intersectionality, which is what people who are Lena Dunham fans uh, will throw out there as a term, because it's also a signaling term, right? If you know what intersectionality is, then you're one of uh, the good people. Um, but that just means that society is one big struggle and fight between the oppressed and the oppressor. And the oppressor, of course, are white, predominantly Christian, but white males. So they are at the top of the oppression hierarchy, which means you have to flip that upside down, take away their privileges, give them fewer rights, give them 
legal or create legal justifications to either limit their opportunity or take away their property in the name of the collective good. This is really scary stuff. Now, I know that you might be thinking, well, it's at Evergreen State College. Who really cares? But you've seen that video, I'm sure, of students yelling at the professor at Yale. You've seen other videos, whether it's at Mizzou uh, or elsewhere, of these crazy college students who are so rude and so full of themselves and ignorant at the same time, deeply ignorant. I always want to walk around at one of these protests and just say, do any of you actually read? Do any of you study anything? Do you know anything other than the crap that is fed to you by reading Daily Kos and watching HBO and all of this leftist progressive propaganda that is infused in your every day? Does anyone ever teach you about honor, integrity, selflessness, kindness? Is this a part of, of your daily routine at all on these campuses? I think the answer for a lot of these students is no. They've abandoned all of that because it's so much easier to just claim that everything is unjust and you are in search of some great equity. You are in search of some fairness that otherwise would escape your day-to-day -day were it not for these systems that you can now put in place to demand a day without white people. Evergreen, my friends, might be the craziest, but it is the first. There will be others that follow. This is the laboratory of the left. This is just the progressive band. a student at Yale University a while back yelling at a professor because he thought that students crying about children wearing costumes for Halloween that appropriate cultures, that maybe that was a little too snowflake-like. Maybe that was just a little too overly hypersensitive. And I skipped past the part where she screamed a profanity in his face. Uh, and this was, I think, a wake-up call for a lot of people. So I, I played to, uh, for you what was going on just recently at Evergreen State College, but this was at Yale uh, uh, over a year ago. Uh, the audio I just played for you, which became very famous. And uh, what I want to make sure that we're all clear about is that this is what happened at Evergreen about a demand that white students and professors stay home. That will be replicated somewhere else. This stuff never just happens and then entirely goes away because the logical ends of critical theory, critical legal theory, critical race theory, intersectionality, and really a, a godless and evil collectivist Marxism, which is the, uh, that is the underlying foundation for all of this, uh, that will take you into some very desperate and terrible places. 
uh, eventually. Uh, that's, and that's where we find ourselves now on these campuses. For every student that is caught on video screaming this kind of nonsense at a professor and showing blatant disrespect and also uh, really flaunting their lack of actual education, uh, in the sense that they don't even embrace that there should be an exchange of ideas on a college campus. For every one of those you see on video, there are many, many thousands uh, at other schools who hold the same views. Maybe they just haven't shared them that way uh, publicly, and they will graduate, and they will get jobs in government, in media, in law, in you name it, and they will take these ideas with them. Uh, this upcoming generation, ideologically, is the most poisoned in this country, certainly since the 1960s and 70s. So uh, we, we need to be on guard for what's coming. Uh, it's not just at any one school. This is a widespread, uh, a widespread leftist insanity. All right, team, with that, uh, I'm going to get, get uh, the sign-off going here for today. Please do uh, download the podcast. Go to Buck Sexton uh, with America Now on iTunes. Click subscribe. Uh, favor I'd ask you is to share the show with just one friend, those of you listening. Next time you're emailing somebody, sharing something with them on a G-chat about politics, whatever, be like, hey, check out this guy, Buck Sexton. Uh, word of mouth is the best way for the show to grow, and I've got a lot of stuff already in mind for tomorrow. It will be Freestyle Friday, so looking to take lots of calls, do some action movie quotes, and uh, just have a great time here in the Freedom Hut, as we always do. Uh, also, do check out BuckSexton.com. Uh, I'm hoping you'll bookmark that as a site that you'll be seeing on a regular basis. All right, team. Uh, thank you, as always, for the honor of your time. Looking forward to joining you tomorrow. As always, Shields High.